as Joe mentioned, thankfully the sermons align. And I said, yeah, praise the Lord, they don't overlap. And no, it was a wonderful message this morning. And really, I pray that our time together complements what Pastor John talked to us this morning, directing us with clarity on the good things, the best stuff, that which is to come, not now, but in the future. And as we think about and we recap and ramp up going back into the book of Daniel where we left off before Sundays in July, we have been in the passage of Daniel chapter 7, the moment we have all been waiting for, the central moment of redemptive history, yea, verily, the very center of even Daniel's book and thereby Daniel's life, because this is the moment that has gripped him. And when he was discouraged and when he needed to understand theology that would encourage him in perseverance and perspective, he turned to that moment, that central moment, the moment he's been waiting for and all the saints wait for. It should be our time as well that we wait for, because that is the moment Christ triumphs. That is the moment that he is inaugurated, coronated as king. And we know at that moment that all nations bow down to God. Everything in history moves to that moment. And so we don't need to be stuck in the present. We need to be in the flow of where all things are moving to in the ordination of the plan of God. And that is to that very center moment for his son. And our hearts should be captured to that. And that gives us a viewpoint and motivation and endurance in all things. But having said this, some of the saints here and sojourners asked me a very, very relevant and pertinent question. Namely, okay, we know that this is the moment we've been waiting for. We know that there is going to be this glorious host of heaven that coronates and welcomes the only one who is worthy, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Where will we be? Are we going to be there? Are we going to be on earth in the chaos? Where will we be? And that's a very, very good question. That is a very, very good question. And that brings up the question, really, of what we call the rapture. The rapture. The rapture gets a bad rap in the church. Outside of the church, people laugh about the rapture. They think it's crazy. They make movies about it. They make fun of it. They think it's ridiculous. And and sometimes they even talk about aliens and kind of use that as maybe that's what's going to be. And, and perhaps that is a cover for what will take place in the future. And so outside the church, people just ridicule the rapture. And that's one thing. I mean, outside the church, the the world ridicules us about everything. So we should expect that, and that's what 1 Corinthians 1 reminds us. However, even inside the church, people mock the notion of the rapture. They think it's funny. They think it's ridiculous. They just think, oh, you're one of those left-behind people. You just read fiction. That's where you get the idea of the rapture from. And they argue, there's just not a lot of passages that talk about this. It's really limited in the nature of its proof, and so it's very rare. I don't even think you should believe in a rapture because of this. And then they'll say, oh, yeah, the rapture, it was invented. It was invented in the 1800s. Well, when you start to say something was invented in the 1800s, it makes it, it, you know, things, sometimes we like inventions that are recent, but with doctrine, we don't like inventions that are recent. We don't like inventions at all. We want it from the Bible. And so when people label 
the doctrine of the rapture in such a manner, it really results in us being a little bit embarrassed. As if, I don't know, well, I guess we could just, maybe we don't need to believe in a rapture. Maybe this is something we should be ashamed of. Maybe this is something we have no certainty about. Sometimes with eschatology, we feel like there is uncertainty. Pastor John this morning reminded us that the Bible is unequivocally clear. And within this, perhaps of any doctrine of eschatology, one of the most that people are uncertain about is the rapture and its timing. People say, ah, maybe there's a rapture, maybe not, but when is it? Is it before the tribulation? Is it in the middle of the tribulation? Is it after the tribulation? People say, I don't know. Well, we'll just find out. You know, one way or another, we'll fly. And so it'll be fine. I got my ticket. You know, that's all they did say. And so we, we feel like there can be no way to have clarity and certainty on this. And, and my goal in discussing this morning, really, and do not forget, where will we be in Daniel 7? To answer that question, we have to answer the question of the rapture. And here is my contention, that this is not an obscure doctrine. This is not just a discussion at the same time to win an argument so that you can go up to your friends who have a debate and you can say, let me give you the proof. And then you'd show them and they're, all, they're in awe of you. That's not the goal either. No, the goal is let's have clarity about this. Let's see from the scripture what the nature of this is. And we can understand from this both what the doctrine is and why it matters. You see, the Bible doesn't just give us doctrine, it gives us doctrine with a purpose. It gives us truth with a practice. Paul didn't just write 1 Thessalonians or 1 Corinthians or Romans or or John, the book of Revelation, and just said, let me list out the things you need to believe. He was using doctrine to address people's lives. He was using doctrine to give people encouragement. He was using doctrine to correct and to exhort. Doctrine always comes with a purpose. Truth always comes with a practice. And so we don't just need to learn this so that we can win a debate. We learn this for the very reasons why God wanted us to learn it in the first place. He doesn't waste words. And because of that, Everything that we will talk about has a practicality to it. It should shape our lives. And so there are three points to this message because this is sermon-esque, and sermons have supposedly three points. One is preparation, two is proof, and third is practicality. And by walking through this, we can gain clarity both on what the doctrine is and how we are to really live it, and on top of that, answer the question of where will we be in Daniel 7? Before jumping in to this message any further, let me just say that this is a Lerman. And you say, what is a Lerman? Some of you already know. And I already said that this is a sermon-esque kind of 
topic, a sermon-esque kind of presentation. And what I mean by that is, just like breakfast and lunch is brunch, and a tiger and a lion is a liger, what you have here is a lerman. That is a lecture and a sermon. Some of you are going to be wondering, wait, why, why is Chow using a PowerPoint? He never does that, except in Sundays in July when they make him do that. And then, why does he do that? Because this is not a sermon, it's a lerman. It has a nerdy component of lecture. Why is he giving us all these facts and walking us through this rigorous logic? Because this is not just a sermon, it's a lerman. And for some of you out there, you say, I like the nerdy stuff, and I like PowerPoint. Why can't he do that more? Why is he all of a sudden preaching at us, telling us what to do, using the truth to convict? Because this is a lerman. This is a lecture sermon. That's what's going on. Basically, whenever I invoke the term Lerman, it it anesthetizes me and immunes me from all criticism. (laughs) And so that is the nature of a Lerman. And I hope that you understand what we're about to happen today and, and why it needs to happen as we wage a theological argument. But as all theology ought to do, it should transform our lives. And with this in mind, let's talk about the first of those three Ps, preparation. Preparation. Now, to really understand the doctrine of the rapture, we need some context, we need some preparation, it puts us in the right mindset, it helps us to understand the right situatedness of this doctrine, and it also debunks some misconceptions. Very, very important to do that, because already, when we talk about the doctrine of the rapture, we instantaneously think, well, it's a really exceptional, rare doctrine. You can't even find it in the Bible, barely, so I guess it might not be there. And if it came up so late, and maybe it's just a fabrication, maybe it's just creative thinking. How do we not know that? Well, let's start to address those things and establish some necessary context. Let's address the issue. Is it really so limited? Is that what is really going on? And second, let us address whether it really is such a Johnny-come-lately kind of creative formulation of doctrine. Are those two allegations really true? So let's talk about it. One is that limited information allegation. And people say, like I said, oh, well, there's not that many passages that talk about the rapture. And on one hand, you could say, That's true. There's only a certain amount of texts that deal with it. But on the other hand, just like with all statistics, you have to think through the context of that. And specifically here, what we call the context of progressive revelation. Progressive revelation is a very important concept, not just for this, but just in general for the Christian life and understanding your Bible. Progressive revelation, by definition, means this, that God did not reveal every single detail and every single thing all at once. He revealed it like a good teacher does, progressively, step by step by step by step. In kindergarten, most kindergartens, let's just put it that way, day one is not, okay, kids, you're going to learn to read Shakespeare. (laughs) And we're going to learn math and addition and subtraction and multiplication by a calculus. And you're going to learn not just that one plus one equals two, but why it does philosophically. <laughs> no one does. Okay, at least most don't do that. 
You learn things step by step by step by step. And God is the perfect teacher. And he said, let me teach you step by step by step by step through Scripture. That is the doctrine of progressive revelation. In the book of Genesis, do we know that the Messiah's name is Jesus? No, we don't know that yet. Is that a bad thing? No. It's just that you, there are some fundamental things you've got to learn, like that there will be a Messiah and that there's this thing called sin and why sin happens. You have to learn all of that before you get into some more details. In Genesis, do you know that Jesus will die on a cross, that specific implement? No, you might not be able to guess exactly that, but there are things that are prerequisited, things that are required before you ever get to that point. If we just started to explain everything all at once, we would all be confused. And so there is this doctrine of progressive revelation, uh, that things are layered in the Bible step by step by step so that you would understand all that is going on. And this is very practical. When you read your Bible, it is, some, it is dangerous to just nitpick different doctrines out from your Bible. You need to read from beginning to end because there is a progress of revelation. God is layering and grounding and teaching you step by step by step every single piece of theology that you need to know and how it's supposed to be thought through and how it's supposed to be lived. This is the nature of the Scripture. This is the nature of progressive revelation. And when you think about it, in the end, of course, one passage, one passage of Scripture is enough to establish any doctrine. Why? Because the Word of God is authoritative. And so if one verse establishes a doctrine, it is established. However, what progressive revelation reminds us is that this doctrine of the rapture is maybe not as limited as you might think because there's a progress of revelation. Just as, just think of it this way with me, we wouldn't say, well, I don't know if calculus exists because it's only taught in one grade of K through 12. I mean, that's like less, around 10%. You know, it's not a lot of time for that in math. I don't know if it exists. Maybe it's not real. No one says that. No one says, well, physics is only taught in one semester or one year of school. So I guess that as a study doesn't exist. You don't learn engineering until after you graduate high school. So I guess it doesn't exist. It's, it's just non-existent because it's at the end and it's limited. In the same way, we need to remember this, that the rapture is a passage and a doctrine that comes from a limited number of texts because of its prerequisites. You see, in the Bible, it's laying out the whole story of God's plan. And in the Bible, that plan does pertain a lot to the nation of Israel. But then there is a mystery, and that mystery is the church. And the church starts in Acts chapter 2. So you're already kind of limited because you can only find out about the doctrine of the rapture, which is part of the doctrine of the church, post-Acts chapter 2, in a sense. And then within that, because of, because of this, you can only find out about the doctrine of the rapture as it pertains to the church when Paul or Peter or any New Testament apostle is talking about the end times as it pertains to the church. So out of when you restrict your search parameters to that, 
what you actually find out is the rapture occurs and the discussions of the rapture occur a lot. They occur almost in every single passage that discusses what will happen to the church specifically in the end times. Yes, if you are looking at the whole Bible and all that it can say, the rapture has a limited amount of discussion. But when you look at actually the passages which could talk about the rapture, it's all over the place. It's all over the place. It's not an obscure doctrine in that way. You could think of it in this manner. Every time the apostles could talk about the rapture, they did. They did. And so it is actually replete. And for those who wonder, well, it seems like obscure because you only have a limited amount of passages. It's true. You only have a limited amount of passages. But for that matter, you have a limited amount of passages that talk about the church relative to the whole scriptures. You have a limited amount of passages that talk about the millennial kingdom, specifically being 1,000 years. You have one of them, technically, in the book of Revelation. The rapture occurs where you would expect it to occur. And remember, one passage is good enough. We have, with the rapture, all the passages that really deal with eschatology and the church. This is where progressive revelation really becomes important. You've got to understand how the story develops. Well, a very similar logic occurs when we talk about whether or not this is a Johnny-come-lately kind of doctrine. Oh, it was just made up in the 1800s or the early 1900s. No one thought about a rapture or anything before that. This brings up a related idea. We not only have progressive revelation, we have what we call the progress of doctrine. The progress of doctrine. The progress of doctrine says this, that in church history, it just took time for the church to learn, articulate, and defend different doctrines. Why? Because the church is composed of people, and we as people, we're just not that smart. It just takes a little bit of time for us to learn. It actually takes a lot of time for us to learn. And just like a book can have all the information, but it takes us time to process it, to layer it out in an organized fashion for us to learn things step by step by step, in the same way, the church has taken time to learn different doctrines. It's all there in your Bible. It just takes us time to learn. And if you say, really? Think about your own life. Do you know all doctrine? Do you know everything from Genesis to Revelation? Every single word, all of its implications, all of it in the original languages? Do you know that? You say, no. Well, then, if you don't, just multiply that times a billion and we all don't know. We're all learning. We're all dumb together. And so that is the nature of the progress of doctrine. We're learning things. We are learning things. That's, that's what happens in this life, and that's what's happened throughout church history. And let me just give you some examples. Early in church history, there were debates about the nature of Christ, about the nature of the Trinity. So they held a lot of meetings, also known as councils, to articulate what had already been revealed in the Scripture. 
And they did so in order to combat false teaching and to uh, express it in very precise ways that would not lend themselves to be misinterpreted. Does that mean that Christ and the Trinity, they were inventions of the early church? No. They were just basing it on Scripture, articulating what was from Scripture. In the Reformation, there was the recovery of justification by faith and the careful articulation of what that meant and didn't mean, and especially in contradistinction to the Roman Catholic Church. Does that mean that no one understood justification by faith at all up until that point of time in the 1500s? No. It just means that because they had worked through certain doctrines, they could work through the very specific issue of justification by faith. They had the foundation to do so, and in providence, they had the need to do so to counteract false teaching. Here's another one. Inerrancy. The doctrine of inerrancy technically was articulated in the 1900s. Does that mean that Jesus didn't believe that the word of God was true? No. It means that we had to articulate this and we had the foundation to do so and we had to draw upon what the scripture said in order to combat wrongful ideas and philosophies and concepts and we had the providential opportunity to make that happen. Here's yet another one. How many of you have heard of the doctrine of common grace? Common grace. That the rain falls on the just and the unjust. You know that the term common grace was not used in church history until 1920. It was not even a solidified concept until 1961. Does that mean, and you all think, oh, it's been here for forever. On one hand, it has been because it's the truth. On the other hand, it's new. It's very, very new. Very, very, very new. And what does that illustrate? There is a progress of doctrine. It does not mean that we just made up new things. It does not mean that we added on to Scripture. What it does mean is that as we, corporately as a church, work to understand the Scripture better, we are articulating, refining, defining things from the Bible that were always there, but that we didn't have opportunity to always discuss and discuss in depth. That's the nature of the progress of doctrine. So, when you think about eschatology, especially with the doctrine of the rapture, people will say, well, we didn't start really talking about eschatology heavily until the 1800s. That's true. It doesn't mean eschatology didn't exist. It just means that we were having discussions about it in the 1800s because... That was the providential time when we could have, when we were not in danger for our lives as a church, and we had the prerequisites laid out, the foundation laid out, so that we could have those discussions and think through it more fully. That's what's going on there. And there are a lot of prerequisites and a lot of presuppositions and a lot of ideas that are required to understand eschatology. It isn't because it's a Johnny-come-lately doctrine. It is because in the education of the church and the discussion of the church, eschatology covers the last things. So even with that, it comes last in our uh, ordering, our curricular of discussion. That is what is taking place. 
And that provides some perspective here, really, really important, and it's two things. That eschatology and the rapture have a lot of prerequisites. Sometimes people think, oh, eschatology, it's so crazy, it's unclear, it's obscure, you can make it say whatever you want, and that's why it's so hard, because it's just the mishmash blob of ambiguity. That's not true. That would be like saying calculus is unclear, and it's just whatever you want to do in calculus, you can do. That's true, you can do that, but then you will fail the class. <clears throat> Eschatology is hard not because it's ambiguous, but because it's precise. It is one of the most exacting, nuanced disciplines because it requires the most amount of prerequisites. That's why there's such confusion about eschatology. Put it simply, eschatology is the last thing. So it requires you to know everything before the last thing. Well, that's a lot of things to know. You know to know the book of Revelation, you have to know the books of Genesis through Jude. And if you're saying, well, I don't know all those books, well, then Revelation's going to be a little tough because you don't know the prerequisites. And that should make us humble with other people. That's why we don't want to go into a debate. We don't need to go into a debate. We shouldn't go into a debate. It's not about a debate. It is about building each other up. And we need to go slowly through different passages and to learn things and to learn not just those passages to win an argument, but to actually learn those passages and how they shape our lives and convict us. That is what we need to be doing. And there's a reason why Revelation is difficult. It's because you have to know Zechariah, and you have to know Daniel, and you have to know Genesis, and you have to know Isaiah, and you have to know Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And if you don't know those, of course you're going to be confused. But that means then when we approach each other, we don't need to say, oh, this is so obvious. Well, it is obvious, if you've studied, and how many of us have truly studied that hard? We have to say to each other, hey, let's be patient. There's a lot here. Let's work through it slowly. Let's edify each other the whole journey through. And that is the way you really carry a conversation about eschatology. That's how it's truly edifying, because guess what? You're not just going to be edified by eschatology. You're going to be edified by all the texts that get you there. And that's a wonderful journey to have. That's a wonderful journey to have. Eschatology and the rapture have a lot of prerequisites. They have a lot of context. They're the last things. And so in light of that then, eschatology is not just this confusing mishmash of ambiguity. You can view it any which way you want. No, there's a very specific answer key to eschatology. You just have to be willing to take it slow and do the hard work to get there. Eschatology and the rapture are not obscure, but precise. They are precise. And all of this goes and pushes us back to the Bible. The progress of doctrine reminds us, yes, you, there, the church has been in discussion for the last 2,000 years or so on all these doctrines, laying them out one by one by one, building on top of each other. And they're all from the Bible. They're all there. But it's taken us time to really learn and define and articulate what is going on in the scriptures, and we have to go back to the Bible. And it even reflects the progress of Revelation. Why is the church taking long to discuss these things? Well, because the Bible lays them out a certain way. There's a progress of Revelation. And just like the Bible says, hey, we're going to reserve some of these things for the end, so the church has to reserve their discussions of these matters for 
later for the end as well. But all of it pushes us back to the scripture, and that's where we need to go. So let's go there. Preparation. We know these misconceptions about lateness, these misconceptions about limitedness, they're not true necessarily. There is something in the Bible about this, and therefore we need to go about proving the doctrine of the rapture. And that brings us to the second point of proof, and the proof is simple. It's three parts. Three-point proof. Not too hard to remember. Ready? Here's the first one. Everybody believes in a rapture. Everyone. You say every everyone? Well, I mean every Christian. Every Christian believes in a rapture. And you might say, I don't know. I have some friends and they think the rapture's a joke. I have some friends and, and they think that the rapture is a good prank. Well, you know, there was a famous story at, at a university that, that's not masters, uh, that, um, you know, they had a, uh, somebody was taking a nap in the dorms and, and uh, somebody said, hey, everyone, just leave the, leave the room and take all, take all your stuff and we'll blow a trumpet. And they blew the trumpet and the guy ran out and he goes, I've been left behind, you know? That's how people often think about a rapture. It's just a big practical joke. However, let me say this. Everyone, every Christian, every single one believes in a rapture. You say, what? How can that be? Simple. Because the fundamental definition of the rapture is the resurrection of the saints. It is the resurrection of the saints. 1 Thessalonians 4, for example, a passage that we read and heard this morning, reminds us that the dead in Christ will rise. That's the resurrection. We will be caught up with Christ in the air. That is resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, which talks about the rapture, it talks and its main focus in context is about how we will be raised from the dead just as Christ is raised. That is dealing with the rapture and In 1 Corinthians 15, we remember that Paul does not say, well, if you don't believe in a a resurrection, it's okay. We're fine. It's going to be just great to have Christianity. What does he say? If, If there is no resurrection, we're the most to be pitied. We have taken a huge risk in that sense of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ because we believe in him is salvation, life over death. And if that's not true because the resurrection doesn't happen, then we put everything into something that failed. That is what Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15. Our faith is in vain. Well, since no Christian wants their faith to be in vain, and since the resurrection is a cornerstone of the gospel, then every Christian, everyone, believes in a rapture in that regard. And so what we have to understand is the rapture, this whole notion is not just some fantasy, some fictionalized thing that you read in some novel. Every Christian believes in a rapture because we all believe and depend on the resurrection. We all believe it. So, to use Dr. Varner's language, it's not if, but when. That's the only question we have. It's not if, but when. So let's talk about when it might be. And that's the second part of the proof. First part, everyone believes in a rapture. Step two is when the rapture is not going to happen. When the rapture is not. As we're talking about if 
It's not if, but when. Let's define when it is. And the first step in defining when it is is when it's not. And it is not the same as the second coming. The rapture is not the same as the second coming of Christ when he comes to establish his kingdom, say in Revelation 19 and the like, or even Matthew 24 for that matter. And an easy way to demonstrate this is through the analogy of duck, duck, goose. You say, what? Many of you have played duck, duck, goose. If you have not, that's okay. Let me illuminate you for a second. (laughs) Duck, duck, goose is when you have a circle. Watch, I'll get it wrong. It's okay. As long as you get the general idea, we're fine. But it's when little kids sit in a circle and one kid is tapping people or smacking them on the head and saying, duck, duck, duck. Duck, And then when they say the word goose, then the person that they tag has to chase them and see who gets into the open slot faster or whatever like that. And it's a very simple principle. You have a pattern. Duck, 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 duck. And then the pattern breaks. Goose. It's different. What we are going to see and what I want you to understand is that in progressive revelation, if you remember us talking about that, God has a plan. He systematically revealed step by step by step by step by step by step by step how he is going to come back, what his agenda is, what his purpose is, how this storyline works. He set up a very specific pattern. Duck, 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 duck. And then when you hit the rapture, goose, it's different. And that means... There's something different about this. There's something that doesn't match. It's something that has changed. And so let's talk about the pattern about the second coming, step by step by step through the Old Testament to the New. So let's talk about it from the beginning, like the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 4. If those of you who are banished, this is talking about Israel, are at the ends of the sky, From there, Yahweh, your God, will gather you, and there he will take you back. The second coming of Christ, the the gathering of Israel, has always been what we call horizontal. That means horizontal. It means along the edge of the ground, the surface on the ground. You're just all walking to be together. Deuteronomy 30 verse 4 puts it very plainly. You're scattered there. You're scattered there. He's just going to pull you back to the land of Israel. Speaking of which, look at Ezekiel 37 verse 12. Therefore, God tells Ezekiel to prophesy and say to them, thus says Lord Yahweh, behold, I will open up your graves and cause you to come out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you where? into the land of Israel. You're going to be scattered all over the place. God is going to just gather people up like a a chick gathers her, or a hen gathers her chicks and brings them and along the surface of the ground to the land of Israel. Isaiah 49, verse 22. Behold, I will lift up my hands to the nations and make high my standard of the peoples, and they will bring your sons in their bosoms and daughters will be lifted up on their shoulders. Notice, They are not going back on pogo sticks, flying up into the sky. To have a piggyback ride presumes that people are on your shoulders. You are not flying. You are just running along the ground. It is very horizontal. Look at the next passage, Isaiah 60, verse 4. Lift up your eyes about and see. They will all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar. And notice this, your daughters will be carried on the nurse's hip. Notice 
They are coming because people are carrying them home, walking them home, running home, back to Israel. They are not flying on airplanes. It is very clear. The text has no mention of sky travel whatsoever. Yes, I'm being a little pedantic here in saying it, but it's super important to notice. Or two verses later, Isaiah 60, verse 6, a multitude of camels will cover you. Notice, we are not talking about flying camels. We are just talking about camels that walk along the ground. This is what we're talking about. It is very horizontal. Isaiah 60, verse 9, Surely the coastlands will hope in me, and the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar. Notice, they come home by boat, not by blimp. Just saying. Super important. Here's another one. Zechariah 8, 23, Thus says Lord Yahweh of hosts, In those days ten men from every tongue of the nations will take hold of the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. The Jewish person walking to Israel is walking on the ground. People are holding their garment as they walk along with them on the ground. This is not Superman, where they have a cape, and people are just clinging to the cape and flying from one point of the globe to the other. It's not like that at all. This idea of a horizontal notion of gathering is even seen in the New Testament. Notice it, Matthew 24, verse 31. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Notice that in the LSB, rightfully so, this, there are parts of this verse in small caps, because this is a quote from the Old Testament. So whatever the Old Testament thought about how Israel would be regathered, namely on a horizontal plane of the ground, that's what Matthew, that's what Jesus is saying. Everything so far, the pattern has been Israel will be regathered home when Christ returns, and they will be gathered as they travel across the surface of the ground. They're not going up in the sky. There's no mention of going up at all. That's a far, far, far flung idea. It never has existed ever from Genesis all the way to Matthew. Very important to understand. Now, then we have duck, 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 goose. We have a break in pattern. And you can say that the break in pattern occurs two ways. Two ways. One, by claim. By claim. 1 Corinthians 15 says, I'll tell you a mystery. What's a mystery? Something that has not been revealed before. If 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians, four more on that in a second, were saying the exact same thing, that everybody's been saying from Genesis to Matthew, then you can't say it's a mystery because it's not new. It's the same thing. Likewise, Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 4, I will tell you by word of the Lord. Do you remember in the scriptures of old, the word of the Lord came to a prophet. The word of the Lord came to a biblical writer. What is Paul saying here? When I'm talking to you about the rapture, it's new revelation. It's new revelation. If Paul says, let me tell you something new, you've never heard it before, except from Matthew to uh, Genesis, then it's not new. You've heard it before. You've heard it all the time in all these different passages. It's obvious. By claim, 
The Bible is already telling you what you've heard about the second coming. This is different. This is not the same. And by content, by content, you can already hear the difference. We're so familiar, and it's good, with 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, verse 16 and 17, that Christ will come down, and the dead in Christ will rise up first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up with them where? In the air. Now, shall we go through an exercise? Do you remember in Deuteronomy, you are not going up in the air. You're being gathered where? On the ground. When people are carrying you on their hip, they're all on the what? The ground. When people are carrying you by camel, we are not talking about flying camels. We are not talking about blimps. We are talking about boats. We are not talking about, you know, Superman who wears a cape and flies up in the air, but that you hold on to the garment of a Jewish individual walking to Jerusalem. So Paul says, I'm going to tell you something new, something you never heard before. Okay, what is it? We're going in the sky. That is different. No one has heard that before until Paul's talking about it in 1 Thessalonians 4. We are so used to thinking we're just going to fly to heaven. You know, the song, I'll fly away. We are so used to that. And that's our presupposition. We just think everyone knew that from Genesis to 1 Thessalonians. The answer is no, you have it backwards. No one knew that. Not until this moment in 1 Thessalonians. It's new revelation. It's a mystery for that very reason. And immediately you start to realize, wait a minute, by claim and by content, these two events, they can't be the same thing. One is horizontal, one is vertical. This is shocking. This is, this is different. And if you really stop and think about it, to make them the same is counterproductive. Think about this with me. In the second coming, God gathers Israel all to Jerusalem, yes? All to one place along the horizontal plane of the earth. We got it. So if the rapture is the same thing as the second coming, either you have one of two situations. You have everyone gathered to Jerusalem, then taken up like an elevator into the sky, only to go back down again, back to the earth. Why? That doesn't make sense. Or even better, this is my favorite. God gathers everyone in the sky. We're all centrally gathered with him to be with him forever. And then he says, I'm going down to Jerusalem right after this. And he comes us back to Jerusalem. And then to gather us from the four corners of the earth, he cannonballs us all over the planet to regather us again. Does that make any sense? No, it doesn't really work. You just, why would he gather you to then shoot you across the world? I mean, it's a great amusement park ride, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't make a lot of sense logistically, because why and how can it be that the saints are gathered in the air versus the saints are gathered on the ground? This is, this is two different things, two different things. So let's talk about something. When we talk about if something is the same event, we just ask a simple series of questions. Do they share the same who, what, where, when, why, and how? Yes, we talk about this. So let's talk about the rapture for a second and make a comparison with what's going on in the second coming. In the second coming, who is gathered? Israel. It's very consistent throughout the Old Testament to the New Testament. We're talking about the nation of Israel. Who is gathered in the rapture? The church. Different who? 
What is happening is different. Notice when Israel is gathered, there isn't necessarily a resurrection. Sometimes there might be a national resurrection, that's true, in, in, in a sense, metaphorically, but it's not that people were always raised from the dead at that moment. What's the very definition of rapture? It's a what? Resurrection. That's a big what difference. Where it's happening is different. Where for the church? In the sky. Where for the second coming with Israel? In Jerusalem. Those are two very different places. Why? Why? 1 Thessalonians 4, we are caught up with Christ in the air, and in that way, we will always be with the Lord. We're taken into heaven. That's what's going on in the rapture. Where are they gathered on earth to the city of Jerusalem? Those are, those are two different gatherings. Those are two different purposes. And the how of it is very different. One is by camels and boats and people getting piggyback rides, and hips, and things like that. And the other one is by flight, like you're a rocket ship, but you're not. Those are two different things. And if the who, what, where, why, and how are different, maybe it's because these are not the same events, which means the when is different. The when is different. And all of that is to say, when we are talking about the rapture, It's not an if, but a when. And when we are talking about when it happens, the first thing you have to understand is when it's not. It's not the same thing as the second coming. There's no way it can be the same thing as the second coming. It contradicts every single detail with each other if you made them be the same thing. But if they're not, they can fit together. Who, what, where, when, why, and how. So... We talked about when the rapture is not. Now we got to talk about when the rapture is. I can tell you lots of times it's not. It wasn't yesterday. It, I mean, that, there's a lot of ways to do this. We don't just want to know when it's not. We want to know when it is. After all, yeah, it might not be the second coming. Maybe it's 10 minutes before, even if you had the cannonball effect. That could be true. Five seconds before, maybe so. Afterwards, maybe so. We just need to know when it is. So let's talk about it. And this is the third part of the proof, when it is. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5. And let me just point out something exegetically for us. When we think about 1 Thessalonians 4, which talks about the rapture, and talks about us being captured unto the air. Notice chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons. Times and seasons of what? That's the question. The times and seasons in context of what was just talked about, namely the rapture. Paul has that structure. In fact, if you go back Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, it says in the text. Why does it have to talk about brotherly love? Because in the previous passage, it's talking about sexual purity and pure and true love and not defrauding your brother. And so just like verse 9 of chapter 4 builds on what was previous, chapter 5, verse 1 builds on what was previous previous what was previous to chapter 5 verse 1 the rapture times and seasons of what 
the rapture. So tell us, Paul, when is the time and the season of the rapture? And he says this, you know very well that the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the what? In the night. We know that. And what did he just equate? The starting of the day of the Lord with the times and seasons of the rapture. The day of the Lord in its beginning is the same time as the rapture's initiation and implementation. To put it simply, and this might be a bad analogy, all the people who love football in this room can help educate me afterwards. But the rapture is like the kickoff to the Super Bowl. That's what it is. It's what starts I don't even know if the Super Bowl technically starts with the kickoff. I mean, I know there's like the pregame show, but in my mind, it's like that's pregame. So I am getting, wait, is it the pregame show? Is that the beginning? No, the kickoff is the, okay, thank you. So I, I will get a lecture at lunch. This will be great. I can't wait. And so the, the kickoff to the Super Bowl is like the rapture to the day of Yahweh. It's what initiates it. Paul equates the two here grammatically. He does so grammatically. And this is not just confirmed here in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It is confirmed by other details in this passage. And let me just show you how Paul packages it together. For example, do you notice uh, chapter 5 verse 9? It says, because God did not appoint us to wrath. Everyone see that in the text, yes? What wrath are we talking about here? In Zephaniah 1, verse 15, it says this about the day of Yahweh, it's a day of wrath. It's a day of wrath. The Hebrew conception, the Old Testament conception, even the New Testament conception, is it talking about and inclusive of hell? Amen, it is. But what is the the lead-in to that final eschatological or eternal judgment, it is an eschatological judgment of the day of the Lord. That's why they're saying, hey, you need to flee the wrath that is to come. That culminates in hell, absolutely, but it's talking about the day of the Lord. It's talking about the day of the Lord. That is how the prophets and the apostles talked. It says in verse 9, God did not appoint you unto such wrath, but to the inheritance or the obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, think about this. If you want to make sure that 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 are combined in one unit, notice what the text says. It says, therefore, therefore, whether we are a, a watchful or whether we are sleeping, verse 10 of chapter 5, we will live with him. Now, if you go through 1 Thessalonians 5, it talks about people who are asleep. They're not believers. Those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. And then all of a sudden, Paul says, hey, but if we're asleep or we're awake, we're with Christ. Wait, we're not supposed to be sleeping like that. You're right. That's why it goes back to 1 Thessalonians 4, where it says, those who are those who have fallen, what? Asleep. They will be with Christ. That's what we're talking about. And the idea is whether you have died or whether you are awake, living right now for Christ, no matter what, 
you will be with him, which means chapter 4 and chapter 5 are tied together in Paul's mind, which means that what is chapter 5 talking about with the time and the seasons? It's talking about what was talked about in chapter 4, which is the rapture. It is the rapture. Those two things are simultaneous. They are synchronous in that regard. Now, let's talk about 2 Thessalonians 2, next book over. Notice, notice, let's make a point and make a clarification. We ask you, brothers, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him. That's rapture. That's the rapture. It's using the terms for the rapture. That you not be so quickly disturbed as if the day of the Lord has already come. Now, notice this. What were the two things that Paul put in parallel with each other again? He said, I'm talking about the rapture, so don't be disturbed as if the day of the Lord has already what? Come. He's equating the rapture with the starting of the day of the Lord, which is, again, like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5, is it not? What's the timing of the rapture? It's the starting of the day of the Lord. What's the timing of the rapture? 2 Thessalonians 2, it is when the day of the Lord commences. That's what we call a pre-tribulational rapture. If the, if the day of the Lord, if the rapture is what initiates the day of the Lord, we are taken out right as the day of the Lord is starting. It's a pre-tribulational rapture. Now, at this point, you might read this text, especially in certain translations of your Bible, and you say, wait, but it sounds like, you know, this day won't be here unless the apostasy happens first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Verse 3, it sounds like the day of the Lord and the rapture then has to come after the apostasy happens and after the the man of lawlessness is revealed because we, we read that word first. Now, let's actually understand the grammar here carefully. Here's what it says, that the event of the apostasy comes first, and then the revelation of the man of lawlessness. And that all happens, and this is key, within the day of the Lord. That's what Paul is talking about. Let me give you a parallel. Turn back, 1 Thessalonians 4. Okay? It says this, it says this, then the Lord will come from heaven, yes? And the dead in Christ will rise up what? First, and then we who are alive and remain will be what? Caught up with him. Yes? Now, does this text mean that the dead in Christ will rise up first before God returns? Is that what it's saying? That Christ will return, that Christ will come down from the sky, and before he comes down from the sky, the dead in Christ will rise up first. No, it's what? Christ comes down from the sky and then the first thing within that is what? The dead in Christ will what? Rise. And then what happens? Then we rise. Yes? Second Thessalonians 2 is the same thing. The day of the Lord comes, has come. What's the first thing in the day of the Lord? There will be a great what? Apostasy. And then what happens after the great apostasy? The man of lawlessness will be revealed. This is not talking about something that happens before the day of the Lord. This is talking about what happens within the day of the Lord. 
let me put it this way. People were being scared. Why? Because they said, the day of the Lord has already what? Come. So Paul says, let's do a checklist, shall we? If the day of the Lord is here, check. It's like, the good, it's like at the doctor's office. You think, oh, I'm, I'm in trouble. I have a terminal disease. And the doctor says, are you dead? No. You're fine. Go. And Paul says, you think you're in the day of the Lord? Yes. Oh, yes, Paul. Has everyone apostatized, including you? No. Okay, then you're not. Because that's the step one. And Paul says, just, just to make sure, have you seen the Antichrist? No. Okay, then you're not in the day of the Lord. It hasn't happened yet. That is what Paul is saying here. He is not saying that these things precede the day of the Lord. He is telling you of the steps and the events that happen within the day of the Lord. Just like in 1 Thessalonians 4, you learn what happens within the event of the rapture, not what happens before the event of the rapture. That's what's going on here. And so with this, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians both time the moment of the rapture to the day of Yahweh commencing. That's a pre-tribulational rapture. Now, there's some supporting evidence to this, and it goes all throughout the New Testament in all these different eschatological passages, and let's just go through them super fast. So here we are, 1 Thessalonians 3.13. It says this, So that he may strengthen your hearts, blameless and holiness, before our God and Father, at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul is very particular about the usage of the word saints. When he means saints, he means saints, not angels. Saints, the believers in the church. Here's a question. How, how did the saints get to already be with him at his return if they're not raptured? How did they get there? Where'd they come from? That's a good question. Here's another one. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Zephaniah, like I said, already established that the nature of that wrath, that day of fury, is the day of Yahweh. God here, through Paul, wrote under inspiration that we are rescued from that time. 2 Corinthians 12, people say, oh, I don't know. Like, is, is there really a concept of being snatched up and being in the air? Is there any kind of indication that Paul thought about it that way? Okay, 2 Corinthians 12. Do you remember when Paul was caught up to the third heaven? Remember that? And he had that amazing vision and amazing experience. And of course, God gave him a thorn in the flesh as a result. That word caught up is the exact same word in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, about the rapture. You could almost put it this way. Paul had a proto-rapture. He got to experience it in advance just to encourage his heart and also to humble him. Revelation 3.10, because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. God will keep the church out of the hour of testing. This is attested in Revelation 3.10. How about the flow of the book of Revelation? This is interesting. The flow of the book of Revelation. Let's do an exercise. You remember this? He who has an ear, let him what? Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this is found in Revelation 2. 2. This is, guess what it says in Revelation 2, 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Guess what it says in the next, to the next church. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Guess what it says to the church, the next one, Philadelphia or Laodicea. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Guess what it says to the next church after that. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Guess how many times is it said? Seven times. Okay? And the eighth time, and the only other time the word ear is used in the book of Revelation, Revelation 13, 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. What's missing? Yeah, to the church. Where'd they go? They're not there. That's why it's breaking the pattern. It's duck, duck, goose all over again. Does John know how to say the word church in the book of Revelation? Yeah, he said it at least 14 times. Okay, that's not true. I mean, yes, it is true. It's more than 14 times to be technical because, you know, he addressed everything to the churches and, you know, all that in Revelation 2 and 3. He said church a ton. And then all of a sudden, the word church stops post-Revelation 3. It just stops. You don't see the church again until Revelation 19. Revelation 19, the bride of Christ. And here's the question. How'd they get there? And where did they go? Why aren't they somewhere? All you see in Revelation 4 through 19 is mention of the nation of Israel. 144,000 of who? Israel. Who will be persecuted? Israel, 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 Israel. Does John know how to use the word church? Yes. Can he use the word church? Yes. Did he use the word church between 4 and 19? Answer is no, he didn't. Why? Because they're not there. They're not there. He already has mapped this out very, very carefully with his precision. He even uses formula and changes the formula on purpose just to help you understand you won't be there. You won't be there. All right? Now, there are a lot of other passages that I could go through, but we don't have the time. The rapture touches on numerous passages, though. Have you seen that? It's not just a select few. This is on almost every single passage on eschatology. 1 Corinthians, Revelation, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Corinthians. All these different texts, when it deals with eschatology on the church, we are involving the doctrine of the rapture. It touches on a lot. It's not a limited amount. It's a lot. It's significant, especially in the corpus that it's in. And we've talked about, hey, it's not at a certain point. It is at a certain point, though. It is when the day of the Lord initiates or inaugurates. It's a pre-tribulational rapture in that way. And a lot of other texts, whether that be the flow of Revelation or how people appear in heaven and when they appear and all these kinds of different things, support that. And why does this all take place? Why is Paul talking about this? Why is it introduced now? It's simple. It's simple. You have to think about the plan of God. God made some promises to Israel, did he not? Now, what happens is, is that because of Israel's disobedience and the rejection of their Messiah, the church is born. The church is like a substitute teacher. It is here for a time period doing Israel's witnessing work to what they should have done, but they cannot do right now because they've rejected their Messiah. But like any substitute teacher... For the teacher to return, the substitute teacher has to what? Leave. So how is Israel supposed to get all of their promises if we're still there operating? And the answer is, they can't. So what has to happen to us? The rapture. 
the rapture. That's what's going on. That's why in Revelation, you have a discussion of the church, and then we're gone, and all it mentions is what? The nation of Israel. Because they got to fulfill their what? Promises. And so we have to be out of the picture at that time. And we are. And we are. Israel will have what it says it will, what God says they will have, because we will be gone. And by the way, it will be fulfillment for the church as well. Because we will be with Christ during that time. And there will be, this is very important, we will all appear, have you heard this before, the judgment seat of Christ. Yes? We will be evaluated. And this evaluation, sometimes people get intimidated by it, and there should be a level of accountability and preparedness for it, to be sure. But this Bema seat, this, this judgment seat moment is not punitive. It is not whether you're saved or not. You're only there because you already are saved. It is about reward. And specifically, it is about reward so that you are prepared for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, listen to this text. I don't even know why I'm flipping there. I'll just say it. So Revelation 19, here's what the text says, that the bride has made herself ready with pure garments, and the garments are the righteous deeds of the saints. The righteous deeds of the saints. What happens at the Bema? We appear before Christ. We know we're so unworthy. Christ says, I have already saved you. You are mine. And here's what I've done through your life. Here is the reward you don't even deserve. It's just grace upon grace. It's grace upon grace. And it's not so that, oh, look at me. I look good. No, no, no. It's this. Thank you, Lord, for giving this to me so I can honor your son. So I can honor your son. Now, if you actually understand that, then you understand why the Thessalonian believers were so torn up about the issue of the rapture because this was their fear. They knew that there was going to be a resurrection. That's talked about since the book of Job. They knew that. That wasn't the issue. They weren't wondering if I'm going to be raised from the dead and whether my loved ones who have already passed away are going to be raised from the dead. They already knew that then what are they upset about? Why is Paul writing them to make sure that they grieve as those who have hope? What is he addressing? They're worried about this. If those people who have already passed away before us, if they're not resurrected till after Christ returns, then they miss the Bema. And then they go to the marriage supper of the Lamb unprepared. And they don't get to honor Christ the way they should the way they sacrificed. And what does Paul say? Never going to happen. The dead in Christ will what? Rise first. They will have their reward. You see, that's what the rapture emphasizes. It's not just the get out of day of the Lord free card. That's not the point. It's not just, hey, you know, well, I am a weakling, so God hopefully will rapture me before, you know, everything happens. That's true, but that's not the reason why God did it. God did it for his son, so his son will fulfill every promise to Israel, and so that the saints will be the most beautiful for his son. That is why the rapture takes place. This is the starting bell of a new stage in God's plan. If you think about it, when God starts a new part of his plan, he always starts it big. Have you noticed that? Like the flood, that's pretty big, it's global. You think about the exodus, that's 10 plagues, big deal. You think about the Gospels, Jesus doing crazy miracles, that would be a big deal. 
This is a new era that the day of the Lord starts. That's a big, big moment in God's plan. So you need to have a starting bell. You always do. And that, in the perfect wisdom of God, is how the church will be fulfilled. Israel will be fulfilled. The new plan, the new stage of God's plan commenced. All of that will happen. And that God put it all together to do all of those different things, all for his son. So, practical. Third point. And let's wrap it up. Why is this practical? Israel will have every one of its promises. The church will have all of its promises. God is that faithful. This should give you hope. This should give you hope. Why? Because you will not be appointed for wrath to come. And even more than that, you will be made beautiful in the end. And it should even give you a hope that purifies yourself. Why? Because all of this and all the point of this is to honor Christ. And if that doesn't excite your heart, we need to address our heart. If the doctrine of the rapture doesn't excite us because of how it honors Christ, the issue is not that the doctrine of the rapture is obscure. The issue is how much do you love Christ? Because if you do, then you want it to be so beautiful for him, and you're just thankful for this plan of God that solidifies that. But it also gives you perspective. Remember the Thessalonians? They thought, oh no, the day of Yahweh's here. We're in trouble. We're suffering. What does Paul say? Okay, step one, has the great apostasy occurred? No. Step two, uh, has the Antichrist appeared? No. Okay, you're not in the day of the Lord. Relax. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we over-dramatize our suffering. And here's the truth that Paul reminds us in 2 Thessalonians 2. You know what's going on right now? Restraint. That's the only thing that's happening. The restrainer is at work. The Spirit is restraining, even through the church, but he is restraining. We will never know the wrath of God. We will never know. Those in Christ will never know how bad things could ever be. We will never taste of that. We will never experience that. So let's not pretend that we are. What we need to remember is, no, in this time, all we have is grace. All we have is grace. All we have is restraint. We have never faced it in God's good mercy and kindness in his ordination. And in God's good mercy and kindness, this is what he has done. He has said, there will be a time when I kick off the day of Yahweh. It will kick off with the rapture, and it will be epic. And along that line, where will we be at Daniel 7? That was the original question, wasn't it? Wasn't it? And that was the rapture question. And it's not laughable, it's not limited, and it's not late. And we know that it is planned to initiate at the day of Yahweh. And when is Daniel 7 going to happen? Revelation 4 and 5, when the day of Yahweh initiates. And let me just put it this way. Isaiah had a dream, did he not? And in his vision, there was an angel that put a coal to his mouth and said, your sins are atoned for. Why? Because just like Isaiah's sins would be atoned for, all of Israel's sin would be atoned for, yes? And in Ezekiel 37, he had a vision, very similar to Daniel 7. And in Ezekiel 37, or excuse me, in Ezekiel 1, the spirit comes into Ezekiel, does he not? Why? Because in Ezekiel 37, the Holy Spirit will come into all believers, even the believers of Israel. What happened to the one happened to the other. Now think about this. John in the book of Revelation, has a vision, does he not? Like all the other visions, like even Daniel's vision. And he is taken where? He is caught up where? Into heaven. And just like Isaiah's vision applied to his audience, and Ezekiel's vision applied to his audience, John's vision applies to what? His audience. Where will we be where John was? We will be there at the moment that we've all been waiting for. 
not because we are worthy, not because we are good, not because of anything we have done, but because this is the ordination of God and this is his merciful plan for us. That is the moment we are waiting for and those in Christ will be there. And that is what keeps us going. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you for this doctrine. It is not obscure. It is precise. And help us to keep sharpening our minds and hearts so that with confidence we can see where your plan is laid out for the church. This is how you have ordained it to be. It is presupposed. It is articulated. It is what helps and ensures that everything is fulfilled for your people Israel, even as it is fulfilled for us and ultimately for your son. And may our hearts always just delight in him. There is a moment we are waiting for. Help us to anticipate it with all of our heart. In your name we pray. Amen.